and welcome to Crashing the War Party, where each week me and my compatriot, Daniel Larison, call out the worst of the worst habits of the blob and talk to the smartest, most independent thinking people around about how to reform them. Today, we will be discussing Washington policy on Russia and China with Lyle Goldstein of Defense to Priorities. But first, let's talk about the Democracy Summit. President Biden has arranged for a confab of the world's so-called democracies this week. By the time this episode airs, it will be half over, but we want to get to the heart of the matter, which is to address the political motivations and the emerging backlash against the event. The Biden administration says the summit includes, quote, leaders from government, civil society, and the private sector, end quote. It'll focus on, quote, challenges and opportunities facing democracies, and will provide a platform for leaders to announce both individual and collective commitments, reforms, and initiatives to defend democracy and human rights at home and abroad, end quote. There will be three key themes discussed, including defending against authoritarianism, addressing and fighting corruption, and promoting respect for human, human rights. So who gave the Biden administration the right to decide who and who is not a democracy? The list looks politically charged, though the the administration disputes that. But frankly, this opens the U.S. up to even more charges of hypocrisy than usual. On one hand, you have Pakistan, a country rife with human rights abuses fueled by extremism on the list, but Hungary, which is a NATO member, is not. Then you have on the list the Philippines, in which President Duterte has been accused of executing drug addicts, and Colombia, which we all know is rife with violence and government corruption. Meanwhile, Gulf state allies like Qatar aren't on the list, though we have been dependent on them to help us negotiate the chaotic chaotic logistical withdrawal from Afghanistan just a few months ago, and which hosts one of our major military bases in the Middle East. There seems to be no rhyme or reason, and everyone thinks it's thanks to high heaven, except, of course, the blob. Dan, I would love to hear your your take on this. I mean, how are you feeling? I know when this airs, you know, like I said, half half of the event will probably be over with. But in terms of a, a lasting impression, what do you what do you make of this democracy summit? So it was uh, when it was first being floated as a, an idea uh, last year by Biden when he was a candidate, and then early on in the, the first days of the administration, uh, I, I didn't think very much of it. I, I didn't think there was much of a point to it. And uh, to be honest, it, it fit in with this uh, this theme that Biden wants to push where he's casting the U.S. as uh, a leader in this struggle uh, between democracy and autocracy, as he puts it, as a contest of systems. And so there, there, there are a few problems with the way that all this has been set out. Uh, one, uh, of course, I mean, as, as you've pointed out, there are lots of inconsistencies and hypocrisies in terms of who gets invited, who doesn't, uh, who, who gets counted and who doesn't. Uh, but the, the, the larger problem is that it, it frames a global contest in terms of regime type, which uh, I think is both misleading uh, because it, it obscures the extent to which we work hand in glove with authoritarians all the time. Uh, and it also, uh, I think, actually creates uh, feelings of insecurity and and uh, and worry in authoritarian regimes that think that we're out to get them. Yeah. Right? And so, so by by setting up this this clash or this contest of systems, 
Uh, it, it makes it sound as though we are pushing for uh, some kind of aggressive regime change agenda in these countries. I know, and specifically, I mean, we, we are pushing for regime change in Venezuela. Uh, it, it seems like uh, we want that in Russia too. And then the Russians are certainly afraid of that, or they're afraid, they think that we're trying to do that. Uh, and so w- Russia and China came out uh, with a statement uh, in response to the summit, uh, basically bashing it and uh, I think expressing their anxiety that all of this is directed at trying to topple their governments in some way. And so I, I think it because it generates this kind of uh, regime insecurity in those countries, it actually encourages those states to crack down harder on internal dissent and uh, on political uh, opposition, uh, even more than they already are. And so I, I think insofar as it kind of puts a target on the backs of local Democrats, uh, it can actually have really uh, undesirable effects. Uh, the, the, the larger point, I think, is that it's not really clear what this summit is meant to accomplish. Because, I mean, okay, you get, get everyone together for a virtual summit and everyone chats and talks about how important uh, free and fair elections are, I guess, or, or how important fighting corruption is. And I mean, that's, that's okay, I guess, but it's, it's not going to deliver anything in the end. It's not going to, to actually produce any results. So it's, at best, it's a talking shop. And at worst, it's, it's kind of a, a cynical ideological whitewash. And so, you know, I don't, so I don't think very much of it. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, there's so much to talk about here. Um, we can get through the, the the hypocrisies in a second, but you made a good point about, you know, what the event actually aims to accomplish, you know, and I keep seeing this sort of like Davos in my head where a bunch of, <laughs> right. you know, people in the club, a, a bunch of individuals, groups, coalitions, uh, in the blob, get together once a year to hobnob and network with, with each other, rub elbows, and also make themselves feel good as though that they are accomplishing some transcendent mission of democracy and globalization. In this case, it's, it's zeroed in on the whole democracy issue. And I'm looking at the agenda for uh, December 8th and the the first few are media freedom and sustainability co-hosted with the Netherlands, young democratic leaders discussion. There was a private sector forum on a business and democracy, empowering prosperity, advancing the status of women, a panel discussion on democracy, affirming technology, you know, almost just reading this now, it looks like a boondoggle uh, for business groups and, and consultants and special interests. And I, maybe I've been in this town too long, but I can almost see, you know, the dollar signs floating around, you know, the grants and the subsidies and uh, other, other uh, cash cow reasons for, for, for participating you know, and and maybe I am a little bit cynical, but you know, getting back to the hypocrisies and the insecurities of those who aren't on the list, you know, you mentioned Russia. I I read this morning in the paper. You know, China is really recoiling from this, and you can't blame them. And and you know, let's face it, they're not a democracy. But the fact that you know we are broiled in these tensions with China right now over Taiwan over maritime security. We talk about how we want to get together or we want to 
pursue uh, di uh, diplomatic solutions to these problems. And then Biden plans this event in which he's saying, you're in the club, you're not in the club. You're on our side, you're not on our side. You're with us, you're against us. And what message do you think China is getting? So they're saying, well, we are democracy and we're gonna put out our own democracy report. We're gonna have our own events. And I'm like, are we in high school? And I don't blame China in the least. I blame the Biden administration for creating a situation where he is um, you know, designing this in a way where it's exclusive and it's putting our allies on the other side of, um, of the fence in a way. So you don't see a lot of these Gulf state monarchies, you don't see any Gulf state monarchies, you don't see Egypt on the list. All of these people that we deem allies and partners uh, so much that we are selling them tens of billions of dollars worth of weapons and sending aid and putting bases in, in their countries, but yet they can't participate in the democracy event. It just seems really silly. Either we do the heavy lifting and we tell these dictatorships and these monarchies and these authoritarians that we're not going to work with you because we don't want to work with despots and, and tyrants and, and really do the heavy lifting on that, which means cutting off military assistance for one, mm -hmm. or don't do this kind of um, politically convenient, superficial uh, scolding and tisk tisking, which is really what this is. It's, it's, it's basically creating a situation where you can say, see, the United States does not recognize tyrants and despots because we didn't put them on the list for our event, but then turn around and work with them and send them military assistance all the, the rest of the year through. And I think that's what people are chafing against, too, as well as right. other things. In, in right. Well, and, and yeah, and this is all part of the, the Biden administration, the gap between the, the rhetoric where they keep saying, We'll put human rights at the center of our foreign policy. Uh, we're, you know, we're, we're emphasizing this and then uh, continuing business as usual with all of the usual uh, clients that engage in horrible human rights abuses. Uh, and so I mean, th that, that gap uh, becomes even more obvious when you see some of the governments that are being included in the summit, uh, where I, you know, I think you're not going to hear U.S. officials scolding them. Uh, you're, you're not going to hear anyone criticizing India's human rights record or the, the way that it's treating Muslims or treating people in Kashmir, uh, they, they got the invite. So they're, yeah. they're, they're basically in the clear. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's interesting that Hungary and Turkey are the, are two of the countries that didn't make the cut. Uh, and, and you can certainly make an argument that in terms of liberal democracy, neither one of them qualifies, but by the same token, uh, that would, that should also bar, probably half of the members that are attending uh, from being included. And so I think this is where the democracy versus autocracy framing also creates confusion because are we talking about regime type or are we talking about political values within among democracies? And if we're just talking about liberal democracy, then there are quite a, a lot fewer countries to invite. Yeah. And if you're talking about illiberal majoritarianism and and you know, nationalist democracies that we're seeing crop up all over, and so that's that becomes, I think, the, the real. Uh, that that's the real dividing line. That's that's what people who talk about emphasizing democracy are really interested in, 
Uh, and it's not actually the regime type. It's it's the kind of democracy right. uh, that we have. And so it's uh, yeah, it's, it's all it's all been it's it's been pretty confused. Yeah, and it almost it's and then it, and then it begins to look like it's a preference situation. So, you know, the Biden administration doesn't prefer the democracy that exists in Hungary. Yet it prefers the democracy that supposedly exists in the Philippines or or Colombia. What what was the you know the the qualifying lines like what what did they base this on? They never told us. They just issued a list of countries and said these are the democracies that were invited and we're going to have all of these great talks and everything. But they never said why one qualified and and did not qualify. And and that opens up the door to thinking this is all politically motivated because in Europe right now, in Central Europe right now, everybody hates Hungary. They hate Mm -hmm. Erdogan. They believe him to be an authoritarian, illiberal, um, you know, whatever you want to call him. It's still a democracy. They still have elections. He has Mm -hmm. been elected and reelected. I personally don't like him. I don't think what he's done with the media, for example, uh, he's created a situation in which all of the independent media in Hungary has been pushed out. That's a certifiable fact, a verifiable fact. Uh, it's not my opinion, and I don't like it, and I don't think that's healthy uh, for a democracy. But I would very much prefer to live in Budapest than I would anywhere in Pakistan. But yet Pakistan is on the list. Pakistan, they just lynched a guy because of blasphemy laws. Now, did the government lynch him? No, it was a mob. But you have a government that has been pushing government religion and education and an all civic life over the last year. This is a major uh, mission of the prime minister there right now um, to make, to, to push the sort of extreme conservative uh, Muslim doctrine in all aspects of life, uh, whether people want it or not. And hey, I'm not going to say that that's right or wrong, but I'm, I'm just saying that if, if that's a democracy, but Hungary isn't, I'm a little confused, but I, I'm not confused on, um, on thinking that this was more of a political political decision made to please the EU and other members of the European community that have been trying to ice out. Um, did I say Erdogan earlier? <laughs> I can't remember. You, you did, um, I, I think you did, but I- Orban, I, I, I meant to say Orban, but right. th- they've right. been trying to ice him out for for a long time now. And this sort of just sort of like seals a deal. Uh, right. No, I, I think that there's a lot to that. I mean, the, Hungary is actually going to have elections coming up here fairly soon. Uh, and we, I think we we agree that Orban has done a number of uh, questionable and, and undesirable things in terms of consolidating power and uh, you know getting a, a chokehold over the media, as you say. Um, but you know it's, it's also clear that they are a parliamentary democracy, uh, you know at, at least as much as as Pakistan is, right? at least as much yeah. as India is. And so it, it does seem a bit arbitrary and a bit uh, petty uh, to exclude them. Uh, you know, of course, I'm, I'm sure Orban's happy to stay away. He doesn't 
He doesn't care. But and it's uh, another talking point he can use. Oh, sure. You know, yeah. and his, you know, the the whole victim narrative that that right. has been very effective for him. Yes. Um, and so yeah, so it's not really doing it's not causing him any headaches to not be invited, but I, I think in terms of the the quality of the relationship with Hungary, uh, it, it is going to continue to deteriorate uh, because of, of these kinds of snubs. And so, the, you know, the question becomes, what what are you actually trying to accomplish? Uh, you know, if you're including India and the Philippines, for instance, because you want them as part of your anti-China coalition, then you have to, uh, you also have to make allowances in Europe uh, for your allies when you need them. like to welcome Lyle Goldstein to the program today. Lyle is Director of Asia Engagement at Defense Priorities. Formerly, he served as research professor at the U.S. Naval War College for 20 years. His main areas of expertise include both maritime security and nuclear security issues. Major focus areas have also recently included the Arctic, as well as the Korean Peninsula. He has published seven books on Chinese strategy, including Meeting China Halfway in 2015. And he speaks both Chinese and Russia and, and Russian and is currently writing a book on China-Russia relations. Thanks for joining us on the show today, Lyle. Yeah, I'm thrilled to be here. This is just a, such a wonderful podcast, so much needed. So it's, it's a thrill for me to be here. Thank you. That means yeah. a lot to hear you say that. Um, so you sent me over an op-ed that you were working on about Russia, Ukraine this week. And the first line is pretty provocative. You say, it is now quite conceivable that a major war will take place in Europe. You go on to point out that a, quote, larger and more ambitious operation cannot be ruled out by the Russians. Um, viewing a crisis as an opportunity in a similar way, similar way to 2014, Putin may opt for a full split of Ukraine into two halves, end quote. But you also seem to blame the U.S. for egging all of this on. So can you explain the first part and the second part about the U.S. complicity and, and pushing this potential confrontation forward? Well, let me... Let me deal with the first part of the question that that is uh, if there is a war and we all hope there will not be a war, um, then, you know, what would it look like? And I've I've really struggled with this, um, but but I think it comes down to two options. There's the basically small and large and small would be um, the Kremlin basically excising off these uh, two small provinces of Ukraine uh Donetsk and, and Luhansk area. Well, that, that's a pretty small area and it, it might involve intense fighting, but I think it, it would be a pretty uh you know not 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 a huge operation really uh and I'm sure it'd be over in a couple of days. Um that's totally feasible and, and probably most likely to occur. But there is a, a less likely option that I think can't be ruled out and that would be um sort of um and, and in a way, I get this idea from what happened in, in 2014, you know, um, when uh, Putin did something quite unexpected and, and tried to make uh, an opportunity for Russia 
out of the crisis. And that would essentially be an attempt to solve the Ukraine problem, quote, solve it once and for all. And that would be to really take all of the uh, Russian language speaking provinces. So the entire eastern and, and southern parts of Ukraine, it might even extend into a Moldova. Actually, some of your listeners may know that there's a there's a, the Russians have soldiers in Transnistria, which is part of Moldova. So it's uh, this could be much larger and uh, worse, uh, really, um, than than many people are forecasting. It could be a, a large war that lasts, you know, several months and involves, you know, tens of thousands of casualties and and large pieces of Ukraine. I don't think that they would conquer the entirety of Ukraine. Uh, that would be, I think, too ambitious. But you know, I do fear that that basically um, the Kremlin is saying that enough is enough and and we're just going to take we're just going to arrange this the way we want and now you also asked about why this is occurring and i you know look um there is certainly blame on both sides and russians can be very um how to put it uh demanding uh and uh certainly i'll be the first to say the russians are um are more paranoid than most more paranoid even than the chinese which is not easy but but definitely they are. And, and um, so, you know, I, I, th- I think, you know, my reading of Russian history is that, you know, uh, anybody who had been invaded repeatedly um, over the centuries and has no natural borders would be similarly paranoid. So it's not that strange, but we seem to have not taken that into account at all. And, uh, you know, it began with NATO expansion and then has become the ripping up of all the uh, of all the arms control treaties. And when you pile all that over, um, you know, in the course of two plus decades, uh, it amounts to a lot of bitterness. Now I read Russian, so I'm reading what the Russians are saying every, every day in the press. And it is, it is very uh, bitter, uh, paranoid, uh, angry, and, um, you know, even vitriolic. And, uh, you know, it sounds like, uh, you know, the, the ground is prepared for war, unfortunately. I want to hand this over to uh, Dan, because I know, Dan, you had a question about NATO, and I don't want to step on your toes on that one. Okay, yeah, uh, thanks. Uh, so yeah, look, coming back to NATO expansion, uh, uh, critics of NATO expansion, which I think includes all of us, have warned for years that keeping the door open to Ukraine and Georgia has been uh, provocative and dangerous, especially for those countries. Uh, do you think that closing the door now would have the effect of, of reassuring Russia or, or uh, giving them a way uh, to de-escalate without losing face, uh, so that they could they could back off, having said that they they've achieved what they wanted to achieve. Thanks, Daniel. I'm a big fan. It's great to see you in person here. Thank but you. I, um, you know, I, I don't. I think that it would. Um, it's the best way out of the crisis. You know, I mean, at some level. Um, that's what's. Uh, if there's a positive here, that that this is a pretty straightforward, right? Uh, if, if, you know, we, we could simply put in writing that, that there would be no, you know, no inclusion of Georgia and Ukraine and NATO, and that, that seemingly would end the crisis. Unfortunately, though, I think there's a lot more to it. And, and here, um, what appears to be, um, as far as I can tell, driving the Russian elite and Putin in particular, uh, to, to, uh, to be so, uh, angry, uh, and suspicious is the steady buildup of um, of exercises one upon the other, uh, 
uh, really, I mean, the exercises have been so frequent that they're basically continuous. You know, one ends and another begins. And it's a constant rotation of U.S. troops into Ukraine, uh, different kinds of units moving into the Black Sea and then moving into areas where we really haven't been for years, you know, whether, you know, um, thinking of, say, the Barents or the Arctic region, for example. So, uh, you know, it's it's uh, the, the number of uh, bombers and uh, uh, also we're talking about um, drones now in particular. Uh-huh. Um, so all of these things have really, I think, unhinged um, Russian thinking on this. Um, so, you know, it, it playing to their most paranoid impulses. And, and you know, you, you would think that we would grasp that. Uh, here's a country that was uh, has almost been wiped out several times, uh, including in, in modern history. So it's, you know, I, I find it appalling that we are not able to kind of account for this. Uh, and by the way, I should mention the immediate precursor for the present crisis appears to have been a, a, a drone strike by a Turkish drone right. uh, that was imported uh, into Ukraine. Um, so in a way, if you will, uh, Mr. Putin is messaging Turkey as much as anybody saying, back off, you are not to mess around in Ukraine. So I don't think we should take this personally. It's just how the Russians are and how they approach these issues. And they they. You know, this is a country that takes its national security extremely seriously. Uh, and, and uh, you know, we, we may get burned here. I hope not. And the, it's the Ukrainians, though, that will suffer the most. And that's, of course, we're all most worried here. Uh, they would suffer horribly uh, in a war, both both military and civilians. And uh, it really is a case of I call it bad friend syndrome, where, you know, we think we're helping them out. But actually, we're putting them right in the crosshairs and, and endangering uh, the Ukrainians themselves. Uh, absolutely. And I mean, that's one of the things that I've been worried about with, with talk of NATO expansion is that it, it puts a target on these countries uh, without offering them any real protection. Um, coming back to the, the Turkish drones, uh, I, I think you're right that that's what uh, has, has informed or, or uh, riled uh, the Russian government uh, so much uh, because they saw how deadly uh, those drones were in the war in Karabakh. And and, and so it's that, uh, that example of what Azerbaijan was able to do with those drones that, that has really uh, inflamed things, right? Yeah, and then their real concern is is they're not worried about this year or next year. And that's why when people say, well, there's no way that, that Ukraine will become, join NATO in the near term. But they're, and it's, it's not even so much the NATO membership per se. It's the fact that they see Ukraine developing into a virulently hostile uh, anti-Russian state, which is determined to increase its military power with NATO assistance, uh, being very active. And, you know, that means Turkish assistance and so forth. So, uh, yes, that that sets off all the uh, paranoid bells in Moscow and they will go to the mat to prevent it. Sure. And uh, turning to arms control, uh, which you mentioned earlier, the, the demise of so many arms control treaties during the Trump years, uh, what well, was a, a real uh, blow uh, to U.S.-Russian cooperation on that front. Uh, and right now we only have the one treaty new start, uh, which will also expire within five years. Um, it, it's hard to see how that treaty ends up getting uh, negotiated or a new treaty gets negotiated as a replacement for new start, uh, given the, the resistance to doing anything with Russia in Washington right now. Um, do, do you think... Uh, Arms control with Russia can be kept alive, or is it uh, is it just going to keep deteriorating? 
Well, I'm similarly pessimistic. I mean, I, I think there are a community of people who understand that this is, uh, you know, crucially important. And, and by the way, what's the message we're telling the rest of the world, you know, uh, North Korea, China, all these other countries, Iran, you know, that, that, you know, you can go into these agreements, but eventually, you know, the, when they're not convenient, we'll pull it right out of them. And, and this is very unfortunate. And uh, the stakes are immense. And, and Russia, you know, I mean, it, we really have to go back, I think, to 2000, 2001, when the Bush administration pulled out of the ABM treaty. But Russia was very upset about that, made it very clear to us that, again, when we built the uh, missile defense uh, um, bases in both Romania and now in Poland, uh, they indicated us to the, the, the gravest possible concern. And now we're seeing Russia build up its nuclear forces across the board. And here I just, you know, there are so many new Russian uh, nuclear weapons programs, you know, uh, and some of them are are altogether uh, really, we have to say, insane. You know, a nuclear uh, undersea drone, for example, that, that sets off a, a giant thermonuclear uh, tidal wave and destroys the entire East Coast. I mean, you know, I think, you know, people have kind of laughed about it, but, you know, I, I really can't see what's funny about it. it it's... Uh, you know, it's awfully depressing for those of us trying to rein this in. But, um, you know, I don't see a lot of prospect. I see a lot of dangerous uh, reverberations. And, and by the way, the Chinese, you know, I read Chinese as well. And, you know, they they are reading all of this extremely carefully. And, you know, I just saw I have a paper sitting right in front of me. The title is, you know, why Russian it's a Chinese paper. It says why Russian naval tactical nuclear weapons are so important. Russian strategy. So, I mean, think about that for a minute, you know, and that's, that's become a, that's not an outlier kind of article anymore. That's totally normal in the Chinese military press. So just the, you know, just to, to riff off the whole Russia Chinese theme, um, you know, one of the emerging narratives is that the United States is pushing both Russia and China together to be more cooperative as they feel that they are being uh, iced out and isolated by the world community. How much do you see that as uh, a reality? That you know, I, I had, we had a piece on responsible statecraft recently that said that both had been engendering ties, like diplomatic and economic ties, but it's start, it's starting to shift into a strategic um, a partnership in a way. Uh, can you you know explain and you know that and how you feel about it and whether or not um, this is a threat or just a reality or? Well, to some extent, it is a reality. I mean, a lot of uh, I find the Western thinking about this dates from from the 1960s uh, when everybody was shocked by uh, Russia and China suddenly becoming enemies. Uh, I did my dissertation on that, so I'm really familiar with that uh, episode. But in my perspective, you know, and if you look across the sweep of Russia-China relations, really going back, you know, 300 years, that episode is really kind of, I would say, mostly an anomaly. Um, the two powers have managed to coexist pretty well, actually, over the centuries. And they've, they've been actually very pragmatic. Uh, and, and they've never had, actually, a major war, which is pretty extraordinary for two large powers with such a long border and so forth. So, um, so look, in you know, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, one of his big uh, achievements, really, besides ending the Cold War with the U.S., was to really, um, as it were, solved the uh, Russia-China relationship. And he, he did a good job on that. And, and, for, and, and anyway, you have 
three plus decades of very steady improvement in the relationship. And I, I think we have to say this is a good thing for global security. And, uh, you know, the fact that these two uh, Asian giants get along quite well. Um, but right from the American perspective and the Western perspective, there is a certain amount of nervousness. And I think it is true to, to say that we've accelerated this process and, and the partnership is absolutely deepening in part because of these shared concerns about the U.S., no question about it. And, and you know, the way I put the question is to people is like this, you know, do you, right now, Moscow and Beijing, their approach is not to have a formal alliance because they think that's destabilizing, you know, and they're probably right. I mean, that would probably that would codify a new Cold War. So they have not they've used restraint and not taken that step, um, but they are edging ever closer to that. And um, they may take that step if they feel threatened enough. And we see plenty of indicators that they are increasing the pace of their cooperation. But they haven't, you know, they, let's put it this way. There's there's a lot more they could do together and are not. So I don't think we want to go there. You know, I'm one reason I'm concerned about the quad so-called, and I'm, I'm concerned about um, AUKUS, you know, this new uh, nuclear deal. Uh, and the Russians, by the way, seem to have reacted extremely badly to the AUKUS. I mean, of course, China did. It's aimed at China, but Russia also reacted badly. And, and one has to wonder, though, if will this be a new impetus for Russia-China strategic cooperation? I think that's quite conceivable. I know we only had a minute or two left, but I was just wondering if we could just shift to uh, domestic, the domestic politics of this, of these issues. You know, we, you know, we, we're talking on the show all the time with guests who agree with us on, you know, China and Russia and uh, the, you know, the, 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 the problematic way that Washington goes about these re relationships. But then I turn on the radio and I get in the car at the end of the day and I'm hearing, you know, the blob, so to speak, talk about how, you know, Biden needs to be tougher on Putin and Biden needs to show Xi who's boss on the China issue. And, you know, I, you know, I was watching Tucker Carlson the other night, it was a couple weeks ago, and he had a congressman on, I think his name was Mike Turner, uh, a Republican who was basically saying that it was our obligation, you know, as Americans to defend Ukraine against Russia, which means giving them lethal aid. And uh, this was a no brainer. And I'm thinking, wow, am I really in a bubble here? Um, do or how much of all of what we're seeing is being pushed by the Washington establishment, which can't seem to get out of a Cold War mindset? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, Kelly. It, it is a, um, you know, the blob uh, has long um, suffered from what I call uh, Chas Freeman's term, uh, enemy deprivation syndrome. That is, you know, they, they need an enemy so badly. Um, we tend to, we lost the Soviet Union as an enemy. Um, China seems to make a great enemy. And then we then we can argue about who's more threatening. Uh, is it China or Russia? So, so everybody seems to be getting all the goodies they want, and the blob, you know, has seen no end of aggressive posturing. I mean, I, unfortunately, I fear that in this, I, I put down a lot. On, I think journalists have really um, lost their objectivity recently, and and you know, I, I've long been saying, look, when we're talking about Russia or China, right? These are countries that can destroy the United States uh, with nuclear weaponry you know, in this maybe 24, 36 hours. 
Um, that it seems to me that should be at the top of every article on Russia and China. You know, yes, we don't like what they're doing to their minorities, but, you know, we still have to get along with them or that could, you know, or, or we could uh, end up in, in some kind of catastrophic war. So that, that just constantly has to be kept in mind. But the wider public uh, doesn't seem to have any appreciation of that. And, and I fear the blob has not been helping to spell that out. I mean, Ukraine and Taiwan, it couldn't be clearer that in both these circumstances, you know, we don't really hold the military cards and yet we keep pushing, uh, you know, upping the ante in the poker game, thinking we're going to pull some great maneuver. But, uh, you know, in both circumstances, you know, these other powers, China and Russia have have escalation dominance. That's well known. And uh, they're, they're just losing propositions for those people and incredibly risky uh, were we to uh, to get involved. I mean, believe me, the Russians and the Chinese, frankly, do not miss a beat when they when they see us passing weapons to, you know, into these uh, the hands of these, um, you know, of either Taiwan or Ukraine that they absolutely notice. And that is taken as a, as a major threat. Yeah. Each each one of those steps. Well, I really appreciate you coming on Crashing the War Party, and I know you're doing a lot of writing and some fantastic analysis on Russia and China and Taiwan. Uh, can you just tell us where we can find your stuff most readily? Well, I just started this, these days. Right, right. Just started this job at Defense Priorities, so we're you know working on a lot of analyses for them mostly, but uh, you know mostly. The, the op-eds will you'll see occasionally and uh, we'll definitely enjoy, you know, collaborating with the whole restraint community to get the word out on these yeah. things that uh, we, we've got to uh, rein it in and be realistic. Cool. So defense priorities. I've seen you on uh, national interests for sure um, and other places. So everybody check him out because he's got some great stuff to say about these issues. And thank you for having or thank you for coming on the show. Thanks, Kelly. Dan. Yeah, yeah, I hope to see you again soon. again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.